0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org.
1: All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious.
0: to episode 161 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today I have regular panelists Christina Bieber-Lake and Carla Godwin. Hey, Christina and Carla. Hey. hey. Uh, so before we get into uh, today's episode, let's introduce ourselves. Carla, you go first. Cool.
1: Um, my name is Carla Godwin. As Victoria said, um, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with my two kids and our two cats. Um, yeah, I work for a, a family foundation, and I'm the director of, a, of another foundation that is a, a housing works on uh, housing for foster youth. So that is my sort of professional and fits my personal.
0: Thanks, Carla. Christina, how about you?
2: Yes, Christina Bieber Lake. I uh, teach. American Literature, Contemporary American Literature at Wheaton College. have been doing that for a long time, although this particular year I'm on a research leave at the Henry Center for Theological Understanding at Trinity, and I am married to an Anglican priest, so pastor's wife. <laughs> Here we go.
0: And today is his birthday. Yay. Or, yes. yesterday, or yesterday, yesterday
2: was his birthday? Was, yeah. hmm awesome. Yesterday.
0: Uh, And I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I'm one of the founding members of the CFP. Uh, I live with my husband and our two birds in a suburb of Atlanta. Uh, During the day, I work uh, as an engagement manager for a market research firm focusing on the agriculture space. Uh, For fun, I do this podcast and write about gender issues ability, art, and embodiment for various publications. I have a PhD from Florida State in British literature and gender studies, and I'm very excited to be with these two ladies today to talk about uh, one of my new favorite novels. Not that it is new, but it is a new favorite to me, uh, Barbara Kingsolver's The Poisonwood Bible. So just a little bit of introduction to the novel itself. Uh, The Poisonwood Bible is a 1998 novel by Barbara Kingsolver. It has sold many millions of copies and covers several decades in the life of a missionary family, the Prices, who move from Georgia in the United States in 1959 to the village of Kalanga in the Belgian Congo, Uh, The novel is narrated in turn by the four Price Daughters and their mothers and spans four decades of time and their evolving conceptions of themselves, uh, their Christianity and their place in the world. Uh, Oprah selected it for her book club in 1999 and then it kind of exploded in popularity. Also, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer that year, but it did not win. Uh, It's won a bunch of other prizes as well. But first, I want to start by everybody talking about their experience with the novel. Um, Christina, you start us off.
2: Sure. Well, one of the things that I do as a general rule is if if I want to read a particular book, I don't uh, read any reviews or or same with movies. And so I had known about this book since it came out. I do do teach American literature um, and had heard what it was about and then i you know, deliberately didn't try to read anymore but what i had heard was the, the, you know that it that christianity doesn't come out looking great in it so i always had it in my back of the back of my mind that i wanted to read it from a christian feminist point of view and so when we're like oh let's talk about this book i was like i need to read it i need excuse to read it and so here i am so um that's my experience with the book and you know it's quite long so it took me a lot of hours uh, to get through it before our conversation today
0: yeah, yeah it is it's uh, at least my my paperback copy is uh, about 550 pages so listeners if you have not read the novel uh, be warned that it, it is quite an undertaking uh carla how about you yeah, um, I think the
1: first time I read it, I read it probably in my in my 20s um, when I was in grad school, not for grad school, which I always forget to say in my introduction that I have a master's degree in English, and that's actually how I know Victoria is because I went to school with Michael Farmer, um, who is her spouse and, and does the Christian Humanist podcast among other things. Um, anyway, but so I, I think I read it started reading it about that time uh, mid 20s probably uh, when I was in my 20s and. Um, it was really resonant for me in a lot of ways because I had actually um, gone to Bible College for my undergrad with the intent of being a missionary and so um, and I had in my 20s you know um, I had already started to kind of really struggle with certain parts of my faith and and um, that idea of missions and so I was already kind of in a in a struggle space with the idea of it of what I had intended to do with my life Um, and what Christianity could mean or be. Um, so this book was really formative just in trying to kind of critique or understand even, uh, not just from a point of view of critique, but understand the complexity of what Christian missions is and has been in the world. Um, and so that was, that was an incredible um, experience reading it for the first time. I read it again um, I think in like 2017 not too long ago I was doing a podcast at the time called Holy Writ that was my own brainchild I just wanted to talk about um, books with faith leaders like their favorite books just books that had moved them and so my friend Rachel is a pastor in Denver and and when I asked her to be on Holy Writ and asked her what book she wanted to read she said The Poisonwood Bible and I was like oh yeah I get to read it again so um, so I read it then and we did a we did a Holy Writ episode on it in 2017. So this is the third time I've approached the book. I did not read it through a third time for our conversation today. I tried to remember from my notes and everything. Um, and yeah, it's an incredibly vivid book for me, um, because it just hits home in a lot of places in terms of gender, um, calling women. Um, and then just, uh, even missions as an idea and the Christian idea of proselytizing. So,
0: Uh, Thanks so much for for sharing that. I'll have to uh, check out that Holy Writ episode. I've listened to quite a few of the episodes of that show, but not that one, I think, because at the time I hadn't read this book yet. Um, But now I have. Um, People have been telling me to read this novel for at least a decade, and Carla, I know you were at least one of them. Um, And so I never got around to it. I picked it up at a used bookstore... Last summer, before we went on a family vacation to the beach, um, I read the whole book in, I think, about three days. Uh, One of those days, everyone else went to the beach, and I stayed inside all day on the couch because I had to finish the book. Like, I just couldn't. I was, like, happy and angry and... (laughs) Uh, it, feeling <laughs> feeling a lot of emotions at once, and I was just like, I have to find find out how this ends. Um, and I'll I'll talk about kind of my my progression into anger and and uh, why that happened in a bit. Um, but I so I you underst- just
2: didn't want to be interrupted on the beach. Is that what you're saying?
0: Um, I I mean I don't know what everybody else was doing on the beach. I just yeah. I I had to. I had to f- figure out what was happening to these people who, yeah. like, by that point, I felt so invested in their progression and their relationships yeah. with one another. Um, particularly because, I I mean, I, I understand why particularly women in my life whose opinions I respected had been telling me to read this book for so long because, uh, as the two of you have mentioned, it really does combine a lot of our... Uh, wheelhouses. There are nuanced female characters. There are evolving religious experiences. Um, for me, and I'll say more about this as the episode progresses. Uh, the character of Ada was an absolute revelation. Like all, all my notes in the margins say things like, "Oh my goodness, where have you been all my life?" Kind of thing. Like I, I absolutely uh, felt her in my very bones and her experiences were so relatable to me and her kind of her adolescence and her progression and her trying to figure out her adulthood as a physically disabled woman is um, unlike pretty much anything I've ever seen except for like memoirs by actual adult disabled women Uh, so lots to say about ada and her progression so i won't do a ton right now but i will end by saying i really wish i would have found this novel earlier uh in my life and sorry to everyone who told me to read it 10 years ago sorry i was so slow (laughs) do you think you have
1: any idea like why you waited is it just about Uh, timing or
0: i don't know i i mean i I kind of, every time somebody said that to me, I would always be like, yeah, I've heard that a lot. Like, it sounds great. I don't think I... Well, I I will say, I think I made a conscious choice not to read it while I was teaching at a Bible college. Um, <laughs> because I for reasons that probably had a lot to do with my own heart and not as much to do with other actual people I met while I was there. Um, I had some issues with the way that um, I saw young missionaries being trained. And so I, I don't know, I didn't want to react to the book in a way that wasn't about the book and was about other stuff.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: If that makes any sense. It does absolutely make sense. Yeah. So, so I, I think that was part of it. Um, but I, I think I just didn't really have like, you know, a copy in my hand and time to read it until I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that makes sense.
1: Thank you. I was just curious. I have this little sometimes when people a lot of people tell me to read a book, I
0: have a little rebellious streak.
1: <laughs> and it's like no. I do that, too. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, maybe maybe a little bit of that, too. Uh, okay, so let's let's dive in uh, to the novel itself. Um, and I want to start by talking about the Price family as a family. So we already said this is a book that uh, is written chapter to chapter in revolving viewpoints. We get viewpoints from all four Price daughters and, uh, and also their mother. And sometimes, interestingly, we get uh, events, the same events from different people's point of view, um, which can be interesting as the world of the novel comes together. But let's talk a little bit about, um, first, at the beginning of the novel, when the family moves to the Congo, how did they react to this change? And what does that reaction tell us about who they are and how they relate to one another? Who would like to jump in here? I'd
2: I'd like to start with that because um that the whole family dynamic of the book really was very satisfying to me in the in the way that it was unsatisfying right like it, it's a it's a picture of a of what happens inside of a dysfunctional family with the siblings growing up and their relationships with each other and uh, having had some experience with that, it just felt like, oh, I'm very familiar with what this what this is and why this happened this way. You know, that uh, that they grow into their own distinct persons, each with strengths and weaknesses, and abilities to change, abilities to grow. I think about the difference between Rachel and Leah, for example, as a as a really uh, just spot on kind of thing. People who come out of the same situation, but end up with completely different sets of of values and responses to it, even memories about what actually went on there. And Oliver does a great job, and I think that's why the book has to be as long as it is, right? Because then you wouldn't get the full effect of both what they were like before they came, their innocence. You know, you think of them putting all the clothing on and the airplane and everything, and then what happened to them after and, and sort of through it. So that I really liked.
0: Yeah, I I think that's true. This idea of like the same set of parents can produce so many different personalities and and those personalities can um, relate to each other differently, even over the course of a couple of decades. They can evolve and change uh, as people both individually and collectively Um, And I, I too, really loved that visual of of them putting all their clothes on uh, at once to get through the airport. I thought that was a a really arresting (laughs) image. Yeah,
1: it really was. And it like um, helped show each uh, daughter's personality, sort of how she reacted to that. You know, Um, I think it's worth saying for sure that it's a it's a super patriarchal family that Nathan Price is the father and the head of the family, you know, and that they're moving there for his calling, that he's been called to be a missionary in the Congo. And, and so therefore he is trucking his wife and four children um, off to the Congo. (laughs) And um, I think that um, that's the thing that when I read it, I'm, I'm a pastor's kid. And so the whole idea of like the whole family being in on the father's calling was something that was really resonant for me and the, the sort of way that families um, in that position revolve around that calling and and feel a sort of um, obligation to it in general um, so but I did think you know each of them is so vivid and throughout the book I don't think we ever hear Nathan Price's voice directly it's just they they narrate and each one I think I've always been stunned by how well she articulates each of each of their voices each of them have like speaking patterns that she captures every time she's in one of their points of view you know and she she just does Mm -hmm. that so incredibly well that the that the characters are for me some of the most vivid characters i've ever experienced in fiction um because they
2: grow more vivid actually which is really fascinating to me Right. right like when they're kids they're more alike and then they become more different
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: you notice
2: that it's really yeah. that's not easy to do it's it's <laughs> really
0: not and you can feel them like become more themselves as they age too
2: that's exactly exactly right yeah become mm-hmm. the persons they were sort of meant to be but also shaped by their environments to be right it's mm-hmm. it's a combination
1: well and i i think she kind of uses nathan Kingsolver uses nathan prices a little bit that, that like early on they're all just sort of um responding to him or shaping to him a little bit so their essence is there something's there but they don't get to fully express that until they're apart from from him from that sort of central energy um Mm -hmm. and and you're right that that is like that's how humans grow and evolve right um but that i think early on it feels like they're all so spinning around that one form you know Mm
2: -hmm. That's a good way to put it. And you mentioned patriarchal. And of course, that's exactly what Kingsolver is trying to do. It also created the most dissatisfaction I had with the novel was that Nathan really is not a full character. I I felt like he was a cardboard cutout. And that just really bugged me, right? Um, Now, some of it could be that, you know, this is a book about women's voices and and this man has all the voice and the power. And so therefore we're going to, you know, give yeah, the women the voices in this book. But I also thought it was kind of a cheap shot. Uh, and he just didn't seem real to me. I don't know what you guys thought. I really was interested to hear what you had to say about his character.
0: I, I think that's a valid criticism. He certainly is the most two-dimensional from a literary perspective. Um, but I, to to speak to what Carla was saying earlier, um, the part of me that thinks that's okay thinks that he spends enough of the plot sucking the energy out of the room. Like that we don't <laughs> totally. we don't really need to hear directly from him because his uh his pull is so strong in the universe of the novel that I, I like that the women get to own the story in this way. But I I, I do think he, he is like self evidently the flattest character from a literary perspective. You're right about that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and Flannery O'Connor gets accused of that sometimes with, when she's trying to make an ideological point of some sort, or it seems like she is right that flat characters just become a, a sieve for that. Carla, what were you gonna say?
1: Well, I just think I totally I, I agree that he's relatively flat, and I can it is a bit of an injustice probably to um, the complexity of of a you know man trying to do the thing there's one spot where um and i there's another spot i want to talk about it on <laughs> and, and another one of our points here but where Leah's talking about him and where he's from and the fact that he went to war and won a purple heart and played on the football team and like there's sort of a you know he he clearly is a particular kind of man um and and leah if anybody humanizes him it's leah i think because she just Desires relationship with him so bad.
2: That's and right. yeah that
1: Part of what Kings Albert does well is is he doesn't even know that Leah wants that relationship with him So some of the flatness is just playing his own drivenness keeps him from understanding the impact he's having mm-hmm. in all of these lives mm-hmm. and the the narrators the, the women who do narrate his daughters and wife um, You can see like Victoria was saying you can see his impact so clearly in their responses that it and I think even if you tried to humanize him, that those impacts wouldn't be different. So even if you That's could see him you know, crack a joke at the dinner table, the impact of his actions are what they are on these people's lives. And he doesn't have the capacity or the desire to see that. So it That's definitely hard. true. Yeah, it would just be hard, I think, to complicate that, honestly. uh
2: huh. It's true, but it also gives you even more of the feeling as a reader, at least did me, that Christianity is just going to produce men like this, right? Like almost like it's inevitable that Christianity of a certain sort is going to produce men like this, which is why, of course, the Fowles, um, you know, brother Fowles is so important, right? Because he is he is the non-Nathan, right? The 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 Christian who is who doesn't become patriarchal and judgy and all of this stuff. But do you know so. There's something about the flatness of Nathan's character that made him seem like oh well, this is just inevitable this is what christian men who are evangelicals who are missionaries become
0: yeah i mean i i think that that risk is certainly there and i think i i am sure i haven't read a lot of reviews of this but i'm sure that when the book came out um christian corners of uh, of publishing and uh and kind of the christian literary imagination uh I'm sure they said, oh, no, this is going to give people outside of the faith an excuse to paint us with a broad brush and say, say that, you know, we hate women. We this is how we treat people. uh, We're all a bunch of colonialists. I'm sure that those conversations were happening. um, And I'm sure that there Mm -hmm. are some people who think that this is is you know part and parcel all of christianity um oh yeah i mean i i think one sure of the things sure right well, one of the things we are are trying to do is is broaden those conversations a little bit so i i can i, I can see how um this probably started a lot of conversations about narrow views of christianity
2: Mm -hmm. well particularly in the post-colonial space right because Mm -hmm. within the academy there is really no room for a nuanced uh, type of missionary like for for post-colonial studies in general theory in general you go there and you're automatically hegemonic you know uh, so there's they can't even imagine wanting to share Jesus and that being a positive thing You, you know what I'm saying so christians who work within post-colonial studies it's really hard to make a case for a missionary at all and so carl is really interesting i'd love to hear what you have to say about that about you know how hard it is to even make a case for a missionary in a sort of really sensitive world where it's just like i don't want to offend you like i i by saying i'm right about something or i want you to meet jesus that i'm necessarily going to do violence to you do you know what i'm saying
1: Yeah, I do know what you're saying. I think it's a thing I've struggled with a lot. And I think, you know, um, the theology that is orthodox, I think, in Christianity, which says that, you know, you can't go to heaven unless you have received Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you know, um, which is evangelical orthodoxy, maybe more than a a fully Christian orthodoxy. Yeah, no, um, I agree. Yeah, so that that one, and I think a lot of Christian missions came out of that kind of evangelical temperament. Um, and so, you know, in that way, you'd be you'd be a like if you don't go try to save souls, which is what the the pressure I felt in my body when this was a thing that I I was thinking I was going to do. Like, what else should I do with my life but go try to save people from hell? There's no other right, right. way. If you really to live believe the life. that this is. Yeah, yeah. it's just what I believe, and so I think that that. That theology, um, you know, makes missions like there's there's a way to complicate that person who just says I'm going to go share my faith with another culture, regardless of what their culture is. There's a way to to not just say that's just a um, a dominance story. It is right. there is compassion in it when you believe that 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 those people with whom you're sharing that story are going to go to hell if you don't, you know. Um, so it's to me the problem is with the theology more than maybe the individual missionaries who went. And it and it I have been mm-hmm. struggling a lot with um, even lately with just how uh, you know I've worked in I've I grew up in white church I've worked in white progressive church white and I will even name that a- evangelical and and there's still a sense even in the like. White progressive evangelical church that the new theology we're coming up with, the sort of big expansive theology, is the theology for the world. And I've just been watching yeah. it. I've been watching it in complication with the progression of the black church because in really specific ways right now, and those, and and the white church still struggling struggling to see the white progressive church that would call itself probably universalist for the most part would say that you know it's not trying to save anybody but it still thinks that the way it's progressed is the way <laughs> you know and doesn't see it as
2: yeah.
1: its own culture anyway I'm, I'm complicating the question a little bit but i just think no you're not this is exactly what i'm talking about it's very you
2: know but that's why if, if it wasn't for fouls i would actually be angry about this text
1: mm.
0: Yeah. All right. You know? So let's you you've mentioned Brother Fowles uh, several times. I want to talk about him too. So let's kind of jump into the the various theologies we we see here, um, and and how uh, Fowles and and the prices reflect um, evolving kinds of of Christianities. So. Um, he was one, of, Fowl's, was one of my favorite characters in the novel as well. I was also very happy to finally meet him. Uh, we, we hear about him quite a bit. Uh, and when we do meet him, it's pretty clear that he is a foil for uh, Nathan Price. He's a, a different kind of minister. He is earthy and jolly and talks about uh, finding and worshiping God in nature. Um, I grew up with people who would probably call him, uh, who would definitely call him a syncretist, and maybe call him a pantheist, um, both with, yes. with with negative uh, with negative undertones on both words. Um, the mm-hmm. The other biggest way that he's a foil to Reverend Price is that he is a staunch advocate of women and children. Um, he starts a program against wife abuse. Um, Reverend Price is quite uh, physically and emotionally abusive Um, I would probably call him a misogynist, uh, though I I think I would say that that is is a personal fault as much as it is uh, an an environmental one uh, for him Mm. but Fowles is is definitely reacting against uh, all of these characterizations he is the opposite of that um personally and also pastorally, uh the most shocking thing about him to the prices is probably that he has married a Congolese woman. uh they have yes, they have a boat full of mixed race children, and they sort of travel um doing a different kind of mission work. They give people food and medicine, in fact, they give the prices when they leave food and medicine. Uh, and much to Ada's delight, uh, a bunch of books as well. So I think that's really interesting that this person who um, who has all of the kind of gravitas of his station um, is embodying it very differently from the ways that the prices think uh, one looks like or acts like uh, a pastor, and that he, in fact, um, ministers to them, uh, in a way that they don't expect. So, uh, yeah, embodiment, have to embodiment say? is a
2: really, yeah, embodiment is a really good way to put it that he embodies in Christianity because part of Nathan's problem is that he's really, is very Gnostic. It, it, it's what, um, you know, what Carlo was saying earlier is exactly right. There's a certain kind of theology within certain kinds of evangelicalism that it's all about what you believe. Like, Somehow it's just like this concept that's going to save you and your belief in some kind of concept rather than like being Jesus in the hands and feet of the church, you know, in the world and helping people to know the love of God. Right. So he just and he just refuses to to think of God that way. And he just refuses to learn anything like the scene where he's trying to plant the crops in the Western
0: style. Oh, it's so so painful. like frustrating and disappointed yeah oh it, it's
2: painful cuz it's like dude this is somebody who lives here you know and and she just did you a favor by building up these mounds and you go and tear them down you, you know so this this kind of like you know b- brain in the sky kind of thing which is the gnostic element of it. it's disembodied this kind of like this set of things that you should believe about jesus who is very um, far away from him if that makes any sense like he just he doesn't seem like he actually you know knows Jesus like that he thinks of himself as like the hands and feet of Jesus Do you, you, does that make sense
0: yeah I, I think so I and and Brother Fowles articulates the opposite right he says uh, Jesus is 100%. here Jesus is in the ground Jesus is in the trees Jesus yeah. is in the faces of the people that I'm ministering to
1: Right. that's right Well, and in that, I mean, I feel like in that way... I think Brother Fowles has clearly let go of some of the pieces of theology I was just talking about, you know, and yes, said, yes. this this must be, be more complicated than I have to baptize all these people or they'll go to hell. It must be more complicated than that. And right, so he right. has that, like you were talking about Nathan Price's unwillingness to learn. And it seems like Nathan Price is even unwilling to learn from God. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like to learn. Oh, from, absolutely. But, and like he just has his thing that he's certain of and that's the story and isn't going to deviate. And it feels like Brother Fowles has had the openness to go oh this whole thing must be more complicated and allowed for that and then like you said it's all it is about praxis and loving the people in front of you and and letting it be letting it be everywhere you know so mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. and finding ways to accommodate to right to the the cultures and say you may not understand this concept but this concept of yours is very similar to that you know uh to, to find yeah. ways to do that and he has no effort no desire um, doesn't even understand the need for it, you know. Um.
0: Right. To, to the point that he doesn't even realize that he is literally saying the opposite thing to the thing he thinks he's saying in his sermon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we should yeah. mention that the title of the book, The Poison Wood Bible, comes from a... Um, rather oafish mistranslation that Reverend Price performs. Um, he's trying to say uh, what uh, Jesus is deliverer. What's the word he's trying to say? I don't remember. Uh, he's yeah, trying to healer, I think. sit, healer. sit healer. healer. Okay. So he's yeah. trying to articulate um, a sort of English metaphor for Jesus that is well known to him. And because he doesn't care about the intricacies of the language that the people he's preaching to speak, he ends up saying, uh, Jesus is poison wood. Uh, Jesus is this, uh, wood that when you burn it, it's toxic in their, uh, in their language. And so everyone is is kind of laughing at this and and not really understanding it because it doesn't make any sense. Um, And he's just kind of standing up there booming at them, um, not paying any attention to their reactions, because that's Mm -hmm. he is.
2: And I'm wondering how much he would have known about like Derrida and that stuff that was really big in the 90s. It's less so now. But I mean, that's exactly his example, the word poison in greek means both antidote and poison right in the case of of the congolese word uh for it it was a mispronunciation i think is the problem right so he if he pronounced it a different way it would mean poison would if, if he if he pronounced it the, the right way it would mean healer
0: yeah if, if uh, I I think i'm that's right if i'm reading it right and i i could be reading it wrong but what i understood um King solver to be saying it's it's like a a long vowel short vowel difference that he messes yes, up
2: yes yes yeah which which is almost exactly like um, Derrida's point except that it, in um, in Greek the the words are exactly the same but the point is that he has he does not understand that language is, is is large and flexible and and that he is doing exactly what Derrida says that you know we do with languages is enforce our own kind of view of things on it. And we try to freeze it, and it just simply can't be frozen. And so it, it becomes a kind of a perfect example of the need to kind of deconstruct him and his faith and his view as the center of things. Right? So I'm wondering, it's, it wouldn't be outside of the question for her to be very familiar with that famous essay, Plato's Pharmacy, um, where he makes that argument.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. I, I wasn't thinking about um, difference, but that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so before we leave this uh, discussion of, of Christianity, uh, can we talk a little bit more about the Price women and, and how their beliefs and theologies evolve over the course of the novel?
2: Yes, let's do. Um you want to take it a character at a time or um
0: we we can i can we can sort of combine this and our our favorite characters discussion yeah. if you want yeah um, let's do that we, our, all right so in in that case i'll um I'll go ahead and start with with ada because um, i i think I can do both for her at once um as i said i like she is a very important character to me i i definitely think um she is is maybe top uh, top 10 literary characters that, that speak to my heart. Um, oh, wow, that's
2: pretty good.
0: I, well, at, at least about, until we get about three quarters the way through the novel, and then I got very upset with Ada and with Barbara Kingsolver and with basically everyone. Huh. Um,
2: <laughs> I so, know exactly what you're going to say, but go oh, ahead and say
0: it. Yeah, so before we get there, Um, The reason that I think Ada spoke to me, first of all, there aren't a lot of well-constructed, disabled characters in literature, just period. Like, um, I don't know, you guys have heard me say on a thousand different episodes on this network that... Uh, Tiny Tim is trash And I hate him for all of time um, we, get, <laughs> we get We get him We get Colin in the secret garden um, We don't get a whole mm. lot And and the characters that we do get Are mostly male So I was really excited To find a fleshed out Disabled woman Who felt like a person Who was figuring out Her place in her body And figuring out her place in the world um, also, she's a reader and an observer, as I think a lot of um, physically disabled children grow to be. We escape into mm-hmm. the written word because it lets us stretch ourselves um, in a way that the physical world doesn't. And I related mm-hmm. to that quite a bit. Um, Ada's... Yeah, she, Emily Dickinson, all the poetry. I loved that. All the, all the poems that she reads, I was like, oh, that was my favorite poem when I was 11. Like, I just... I. Ooh. I really felt all of that very strongly. Um the the kind of metaphorical self-exploration she does through backwards words and backwards sentences and and the Oh yeah,
2: brilliant stuff.
0: Uh yeah. The way that that lets her kind of work through um anger and exploration about the way she fits or doesn't fit in the world around her. Um, I love that the book lets her be angry and, and like, lets her feel excluded, but the also point. lets mm-hmm. her grow and mature and develop a sense of self that is informed by that anger, but not constricted by it. Um, until <laughs> there is a point in the novel um, where Ada is in a relationship with this neurologist and they start doing studies together and she retrains the synapses in her brain such that uh, she is no longer disabled. And guys, I was so upset. I was so unbelievable. Like I fully threw the book on the ground and like started yelling cursing (laughs) like i can't believe i felt so betrayed by it
2: yeah 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 i I, I knew you were gonna say that i knew and that's right
0: i i felt like like i was given this person who was my friend and who like validated my experience in the world and then it was like oh just kidding not all of you just 90% of you but the rest of you sucks yeah it was awful and I hated it
2: I'm really sorry
0: yeah it really was a betrayal so I'll say one more thing about kind of Ada's evolving belief and then I'll let you guys talk so essentially Ada exchanges uh, religion for science And she becomes a virologist, and she says that she doesn't really believe that God can change or save people the way that she used to, but that people can use medical knowledge to change the world in a similar but different way, and and that's essentially where she ends up. And I... That's something I guess I'm I'm less dissatisfied with that than I am with the fact that uh her disability is literally all in her head which is just I can't I can't uh sorry I'm not going to be more articulate about this because I just hate it so much uh that's totally fine you're perfectly articulate (laughs) but her uh her scientific evolution at least uh Makes more sense than that to me.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm still a little stunned. I like. I know I've read that, <laughs> and I know you know it's a in part like a just entirely an able body privilege for me to hardly have even remembered that that happened. You know what I mean? That like all I I, I like when I think of Ada, I like don't think of I don't know I just think throughout the book how how her you know different ability is is actually her strength and I don't understand like I have a, a sense of like oh my word <laughs> like a little bit dumbfounded so um yeah I yeah I don't know I almost don't know what to say about it <laughs> so mm-hmm. um. I will. I do. You want me to just keep going on mine since I'm talking.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, Talk, well, tell Tell okay. us about someone else.
1: Okay. Um. So one of the things about, or so I think that the character that I feel like a sense of, um, m- maybe identification with, is, um, Leah. She she works. She is. Um, I don't know. She works really hard to gain Nathan's favor. She's the one who wants to be like him the most she like um, wants to participate in his calling and his world and she's always trying to find a way to do that you know um, and I think that the only reason that she starts to question her faith in some ways is because she's not fully allowed to she's just not allowed to mm-hmm. participate in, it in the way that she wants to and so um, because of that she starts to wonder how true it can be um, so she she starts to have a sense of this just the intern the, she has like a the same sort of drive for, for justice and for um, bravery or whatever may have at one point driven Nathan to do the work that he's doing but because she can't access it in the same way she's, she's constantly sort of in a, in a stressed relationship with it um, she does end up marrying a Congolese man um, named Anatole is how I know to say his name is there a correction for that does anybody know better?
0: Sounds good. That, okay. that, that's how I was saying it in my head.
1: Okay, cool. So, and she ends up, you know, staying in the Congo, and they have four sons, and she, uh, you know, Anatole is imprisoned for a while, and she works with nuns to do, like, um, mine identification, like, find landmines, and, and, and it just has an incredibly interesting life that is really, I would say, embedded in Congolese, um, culture like she she sort of becomes part of it in as much as she can which is very different i say that sort of in contrast to rachel like rachel ends up very much sort of taking on the patriarchal or the white supremacist like form of of being in the congo but not um not like becoming part of it she she stays in sort of a power position and uses her whiteness as a way to gain power and a way to gain money um and so her her
0: white femininity specifically too yeah Mm -hmm, Yes. yes
1: Yep. In a power over kind of way. So when a patient uses her white femininity in a patriarchal way, <laughs> I mean, a white supremacist, right, is how I would think about it. But so she so Leah, to me, is a really different has a very different relationship with the Congo in that she really does uh, sort of just as much as she can become part of it. And, and it becomes her place. And she at the end kind of wraps up with saying, I have found home. This is home for me. These boys my husband, this home, even the landmines that I'm still, that are still hurting people. And, um, she like, like works to continue to make, um, to solve some of that. So she's, she's probably the one that I feel a little bit of an identification with. I think that, um, it's Orlena's faith that, that feels the most interesting to me in some ways in the way that it evolves, because, uh, she, she talks about the sort of, um, I don't know, there's a passage. Is it is it allowable to just stop and read a passage? Because I like there's some stuff that I'm like, I can't say Please, yes,
0: please. It? I, yeah. I feel like I'm not quoting enough, so please yeah, yes.
1: Great. Um, let's see, I want to figure out exactly where I should start and if there's so she's talk- talking about um sort of the the fire and brimstone uh of of Nathan's teaching and how like it was it's a fire and brimstone that made him stay and it's a fire and brimstone that finally made her leave um let's see maybe you still she's talking about uh nathan and and it's kind of toward the end of the book and she's talking about why she finally left and is sort of talking about um like why it took her so long and she's almost writing this to ruth may uh which we haven't we haven't discussed that and it's a huge spoiler so um she's writing it to ruth may um Maybe you still can't understand why I stayed so long. For so why I stayed so long. I've nearly finished with my side of the story, and I still feel your small round eyes looking down on me. I wonder what you'll name my sin—complicity, loyalty, stupefaction. How can you tell the difference? Is my sin a failure of virtue or competence? I knew Rome was burning, but I had just enough water to scrub the floor, so I did what I could. My talents are different from those of the women who cleave and part from their husbands nowadays and my virtues probably unrecognizable. But look at old women and bear it in mind that we are another country. We married with simple hopes, enough to eat and children who might outlive us. My life was a business of growing where planted and making good on the debts life gathered of me. Companionship and joy came unexpectedly, mostly in in small exploding moments when I was apart from my husband and children, a kiss of flesh colored sunrise while I hung out the wash, a sigh of indigo birds exhaled from the grass. "'and Okape had the water. "'It didn't occur to me to leave Nathan on account of unhappiness "'any more than Tata Mwanza would have left his disfigured wife, "'though a more able woman might have grown more manioc "'and kept more of his children alive. "'Nathan was something that happened to us, "'as devastating in its way as the burning roof "'that fell on the family Mwanza. "'Our fate scarred by hell and brimstone, "'we still had to track our course. "'And it happened, finally, by the grace of hell and brimstone "'that I had to keep moving.' I moved and he stood stood still, but his kind will always lose in the end. I know this, and now I know why. Whether it's wife or nation, they occupy. Their mistake is the same. They stand still, and their stake moves underneath underneath them. And I think that um, that piece, her sort of. It was inevitable that her faith evolved. Like, it wasn't that she was trying to push against Nathan. Um, no, it was that's just right. that she couldn't stay where he was. She just couldn't stay because yeah. it didn't work for her and it didn't work for her children. And we're kind of back at that Im- embodiment point where it's just, it, it it doesn't work. It doesn't care for the people that it needs to care for, <laughs> you know?
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: right, right.
0: That's a great passage. Yeah, it it really is, is wonderful. And I, I feel like I can... I can feel so many women in my family in it, so many older women that I have known that sort of were in the relationships that they were in and were in the churches that they were in and kind of felt in their hearts that it was too small for them, but but had to had to get to a place where they realized, in fact, they were bigger and had to move, yeah. Yeah, That's well said.
2: Well, Leah was also my favorite character. <laughs> um, so uh, part of the reason was that I related to her being more of a tomboy, kind of more of an outdoor type of person. And interestingly enough, at the same age that she was when they moved to the Congo this is the age that I was when we moved to the Panama Canal Zone because my dad was military. And so my childhood had some similarities that to, to theirs. Now, the difference uh, between their experience of the Congo and my experience of Panama is is pretty profound because they were they were popped right in the middle of the poverty, uh, and then they had that time when their uh, money was taken away from them, you know. So, uh, and that's not what being on an Air Force Base is like. So let me be perfectly clear. But the otherness of the people and the the animals and the plants and just the climate and the ants and you know, just I mean, I, I and her kind of way of reflecting on that made perfect sense to me. So I really felt like I, I I totally understood what she was talking about. Um, and I love the way that she changes and and grows as a character. Um, I love her relationship with Anatoly. I think it's just a really interesting relationship. Um. So as she kind of matured, I was increasingly fascinated by her. I grew to really like her a lot. At the beginning, it was the mother who was my favorite character, and I think it's just because she is more uh, theologically complex from the beginning, right, and broken, um, and then sort of inherently interesting in that regard. And then you see um, Leah. Leah might be just the healthiest one of all the characters, like in terms of her. I don't know. Yeah, I th- I think so. You know? I yeah. think so. And it's sad to me that King Oliver couldn't find a way to make her uh, find Christianity, right? Like, or re- re-inhabit it like a kind of a fouls type, that, that she wouldn't even allow her that. Because I think that is very possible that she could have grown to, you know, to, to return to a different version of her father's faith.
0: Yeah, I I was a little saddened by the degree to which these characters felt like they had to completely separate themselves from yeah f- from from not just the faith that they were raised in, but from what felt like faith almost entirely. That
2: yeah, and Fowls they could have you know Fowls was somebody she responded well to, right? So she could have. One could have imagined her going in that direction, right? Right. But it also isn't it true, Victoria, as well that th- what we're seeing is the sins of the fathers. Right. Mm-hmm. The sins of the father makes all of their children completely alienated from Christ.
0: And and you know? not not Ooh. just the father Nathan, but also right. the father. The United States and Americanness, yes. and what's that amazing line about Eisenhower? Um, the the oh, the man, yeah. the man with the grandfather face had another face. Yeah. And this yeah, th- really this good. idea that like you know um, American um, manifest destiny, white prosperous capitalist colonialism that they've uh, that they've grown up seeing as right and good. Um, when when they find out that it is in fact responsible for the destruction of people and places that they now also love, and and what a what a betrayal that is. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Well, and that's what I I wanted to say I, I'm, with Brother Fowles. Like I think that maybe Brother Fowles' progression of faith is sort of because he's he's male, so he still does have the experience of being. Uh, like I, I think a lot about you know just the way that we talk about god in the in the masculine or have for a long time you know we talk about god in the masculine so that it actually i think um becomes hard sometimes to see ourselves as women in the person of god and so i think that that and i know person of god god is not person but in the being of god you know i understand the complexity of, of what i'm saying but one of the things i've tried to do in some of the work i've done in progressive faith is to try to you know just use words rename god in other pronouns and other to to just say we can what if we expand that what does that change in terms of the experience Mm -hmm. of faith for someone like leah who who wants Mm -hmm. so badly to be a part of it she wants to be part of of the thing and she just is continually Mm -hmm. told she's not Mm -hmm. you know and Mm so so i feel like the 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 expansion of the, the the theological understanding of what god is and god's work is the only way for someone who hasn't traditionally been included in that work to to have mm-hmm. a way forward and i don't feel like she was really ever offered that even from brother Fowles. you know
0: mm. yeah so, that's a that's a really good point mm. uh okay so i wanna since carly you you mentioned not uh spoiling a particular thing um earlier I, I wanna talk about that and I wanna talk about um the the kind of overwhelming crush of repeated tragedies in this novel and and how we how we feel about that um is this novel misery porn? or Or is something else going on? Uh, the the number of losses that are experienced here, um I'm just gonna I'm gonna read a list. Um, and I if you have not read this novel, listeners, uh, lots of things are about to be spoiled for you. Uh, Not going to name every bad thing that happens, but just off the top of my head, uh, Rachel's traumatic arranged marriage, the river of flesh-eating ants, uh, Ruth Maid's death of malaria, Mrs. Price's understandable but incredibly lengthy and difficult on her daughter's depression, uh, Leah's husband's imprisonment, uh, all of the colonial uh, fighting, both physical and... uh, and political, I, The hits just keep on coming for these people. And I suppose there's something to be said of the fact that they just keep living life in the face of tragedy, as we all do from time to time. And they mostly seem to come out the other side with some greater understanding of self. Uh, but that doesn't make the tragedy not exist. So um, w- what is the point of this? is it just misery porn or is something else going on help me figure this out
1: i mean i i i don't feel like it's just misery porn i feel like there is um and and you know i think we, we were talking about it in, in part um in our in our outline and such about it. is this just in the experience of a woman is to experience loss of children marriages you know oneself all those things and i think that um I don't think that that is the overarching impression that it leaves me with that they just are continually losing um, I I feel like in part you know even that passage that I read of Orlena's is like she goes on to talk about there's, there's a sentence not far, far after the passage that I just read that says Africa swallowed the Conqueror's music and sang a new song of her own so there's kind of this constant sense of like um the ability for this changeableness that is um in the book uh in some ways aligned with the feminine to to engulf and incorporate there's almost a sexuality about it to to you know the engulfing <laughs> of the pain of the problem or whatever the thing and and to sing a new song out of it to have a new a new experience out of it and I don't mean by that to to like glorify pain in any way um but I but I do think that the women in the book each has her own becoming that isn't wholly just about loss. Um, and so, so yeah, I don't know. I, there definitely is a ton of suffering in this book. Um, but I, I just, my experience of the book is not one of, of hopelessness. It is, is very much of like, a. uh, there was a sense of that family suffering and that and starting to understand that suffering it is Is an experience and that they are as susceptible to suffering as everyone else and that there isn't an exemption You know, um, and I think that that was an important part of the of the story and of their like self-discovery, you know
2: Mm. First of all, I love the term misery porn. I've not heard that before (laughs) Yeah, i'm not sure that that's what this is um either but but it is really sad. I mean, um, in, in in a realistic way, though, in, in, in the sense of what I started talking about at the beginning of our conversation, the fact of a dysfunctional family with a leader who is really um, inept, the leader being the, the father in this case, uh, and then the sins, his sins kind of sort of um, coming out in their adult relationships with each other. And, frankly, just sort of their own brokennesses, right, that never really get a chance to be recovered or healed. It's very sad, but it's very realistic. So, um, but yeah, in terms of the hits that happened to them um, in Africa, it, it's, I think that is a direct result of, of him not really understanding, the father not really understanding um, what he was getting his family into, you know, and so I think that has to kind of happen that way. For the book to to work, but that um, that's something I could change my mind about. But but the fact what what is more interesting to me is how his just um, his failures just continue to oppress them in in a way um, they can't fully escape from the orbit of 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 what he's done to them.
0: So this seems like it, it might be a good time to to talk a little bit about. Where we end up landing on Reverend Price himself, Uh, we've already mentioned that he is sort of simultaneously the least present and most present um, character in the novel. We don't directly hear from him, but you can't, um, as Christina has just said, escape his influence even um, 40 years on at the end of the novel. So what about him? Um, do we hate him? Do we pity him? A little bit of both, something else. How do we feel?
1: In some ways, I feel like he he uh, does just become the, the still thing that you almost don't have to have an opinion about because he becomes, while he still has impact, everything moves around him, moves on, and he sort of stays in this rigid place. You know, that's a little the way that or- Orleana was writing about him and um, a little of the experience there so while he's had this huge impact like I almost feel and you know I almost feel numb about him <laughs> like he like he, he
2: I, I agree with that totally he tries yeah. to do things That's... and they're
1: ineffective and and I there's this um, there's a passage that I remember right after and I, I forget stuff all the time but there's a passage I remember where after Ruth May died um, and they were at the, having the funeral it starts raining and it's been a drought and so it's raining and raining and here he's been trying to you know, um, baptize the the village children for a year and a half or however long it's been. And he's been trying to get him to go down to the river, not knowing that a kiddo had been uh, attacked by an alligator in the river. And so nobody will go down there with him. And so when it starts raining, he thinks I'm going to take advantage of this and starts baptizing each of the children in the name of the father, son, and the Holy spirit. And the children all remember Ruth May and a game she tried to play with them that was, or, or that she did play with them that she taught them early on called mother. May I? Right. And so Every time he baptizes one of the children in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the, ch- the child, thinking of Ruth May, who's right there in her shroud, says back to him, Mother, may I? <laughs> you know? And I feel like there's a certain, like, that's the, that's the feeling I get about this, that even that insistence on the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's a certain, like, vi- vitality of, or response of, of motherness here that that just leaves me feeling like, yes, he has massive amounts of impact, and that impact doesn't ever overwhelm or overcome entirely this this mother force, you know? Um, oh, so he, that's he really starts, interesting. You know, maybe he's maybe that's pity that I feel, but it's something of just like meh
0: <laughs> you know. I mean, he does get an awful lot of chances. Like I I, I think that's a valid response because he just He's so unyielding. He's so unwilling to see what's happening around him. Um, I, I want to quote a, a passage that stuck with me. Um, this, is, this is Leah talking um, a, about her father. Uh, if I could, and this is page 525 in my edition, If I could reach backward somehow to give father just one gift, it would be the simple human relief of knowing you've done wrong and living through it. Poor father who was just one of a million men who never did catch on. He stamped me with a belief in justice, then drenched me in culpability, and I wouldn't wish such torment even on a mosquito. But that exacting, tyrannical god of his has left me for good. I don't quite know how to name what crept in to take his place. Some kin to the passion of brother fowls, I guess, who advised me to trust in creation, which is made fresh daily and doesn't suffer in translation. This god does not work in especially mysterious ways. The sun rises and sets at six exactly. A caterpillar becomes a butterfly. A bird raises its brood in the forest and a green heart tree will only grow from a green heart seed. I, that passage just punched me square in the gut. The idea that you are raised to believe in justice and then drenched in culpability. Mm. Like, Mm. wow. Wow. Yeah, it's really good. That's really good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't really have anything more. So I I agree, Carla. It, there is something about him that just leaves me numb. Maybe it's his two dimensionality or something. But, um, and I, yeah, and I I think part of it is that I'm resisting, trying to resist anyway. Kingsolver's desire to make me totally hate him. It seems like she wants me to hate him, and I just I I, I don't I don't think that's fair. I guess uh, so. that's –
0: i I don't hate him, I feel really sorry for him like i I am sad that he is not able to have the kind of three hundred and sixty degree view that leah or that orleana eventually have i that saddens me like Ooh. i I would like him to be able to do that
2: yeah yeah no that is very sad. It's a very sad story. I mean, there's just sadness just everywhere inside of it and not the least of which is the way that the mother um, never seems to fully recover herself right um she's just I don't
1: she's know the yeah to recover <laughs> you know yeah i feel like she's pretty consistent um even at the at the end like she feels like she is still sort of um she has been brought up to uh, evaluate herself in relation to or in reference to the the things around her particularly the men around her at that point and then late in, in life that's not what she's doing but she still seems um to me t- to have a certain freedom of movement now because she's not attached to a man but she still seems like she's not she's a hard substance to like wholly understand she doesn't yeah you know what i'm saying um yeah oh i do so there's, a, and this is the thing King's older does well is to, you know, to let that thing that, that is already there evolve. Um, mm-hmm. And she mm-hmm. does that, work, I think. But I I mean, I think that that what Leah says about her father is that passage you read, uh, Victoria, is, is the passage. I mean, I just think that's the thing about him, like that she, she wishes for him that he could feel himself make a mistake, do wrong and live through it. Acknowledge that, mm-hmm. you know, live mm-hmm. through it. And the, the, the often the only way to know you've done wrong because that's tricky sometimes, it's not just as simple as "Don't break the Ten Commandments or whatever, it's is to look where at the impact you're having.
2: exactly. open and, your eyes. yeah, yes. and
1: then to learn from it. and that and to be willing to to not self-center every time and say, "Here's why I did that thing that justifies it, right? But to say that impact was had by my action, and now I need to assess my action based on the fact that I see harm. And to, to change, to do something different, you know, um, and that I feel like, um, yeah. in the men of my father's generation, and and in the theology that's there, which just says, you know, covering is the way you deal with sin. <laughs> you know, you don't actually really acknowledge impact. You just cover it with the blood of Jesus, and it's all over. Um, and that's we just so get well said. The blood of Jesus. You know, and and that's that so well said. To me, is like I, I have a deep. Like my, as I'm talking, like deep in my chest, there's just pain, you know? So um, that's a sad thing.
0: So I I maybe shouldn't ask this question, but, and and please tell me if you're not comfortable answering it or we'll cut this out or whatever. So were you not raised in a church that told you to confess to people you had wronged? no
1: i mean i would say yeah there was the idea of of confessing and making right but i think that it was so overshadowed by the simplicity of your sins are covered you know by jesus once you've said the prayer okay once you've said the prayer and you know i i'm happy to my parents grew up nazarene and in in the nazarene faith you can actually lose your salvation so you know, like you can, if you sin, you could potentially lose your salvation. So that covering isn't, isn't a fine, isn't a final thing. It's a, it comes and goes and you have to kind of be constantly tending it, you know, which is, it's,
0: which is in in its
1: way, there's something, um, about impact there that could be positive, but in terms of like personal safety and potential like <laughs> trauma that that's problematic. And so my parents faith evolution was to become, to believe in eternal security was just was to say, Nope, once covered, always covered, you know, you're just, you're, you're okay. But that, I right. do think that, that to me has created a bit of a, um, and I also think, you know, that families have their things, right? Um, so this is partly church and partly family we just aren't good at conflict we aren't good at like having a conversation about you think this i think that how do how do we need to resolve that or do we need to resolve it or is it you know so so but but i have a sense of this idea of covering in conservative evangelicalism really struggling to acknowledge impact and i see it in lots of ways that I I can I'll stop there (laughs) no
0: that that makes sense thank you thank you for explaining that a little bit more Mm -hmm. I I will say too I I agree with um with what you're saying about the impact of of wrong or or sin and that is one of the things that has drawn me to Catholic theology like I I love the idea that absolution is a sacrament and that I go once a month or once every six weeks, whenever to in front of a human person to whom I say I have sinned in these ways against these people. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's confessing to the church, just as it's confessing to Christ. And so I I understand uh, what you're saying. And I think I agree with the need for assessing impacts, even as I'm sort of talking about doing it in a, a different way.
1: Right. I that is I just love that you said that you said it that way. Cause I, I remember a conversation with Michael once just, we were talking about the inevitability of, um, of like hurting people just by existing. And, you know, he's written about that. I think about it a lot. And, um, and he I said something we were just talking about it all and I was saying something about forgiveness and trying to understand what it meant and he said you're not talking about forgiveness you're talking about absolution you want absolution and I and I just w- had an awareness of like oh I don't even really understand in my being what forgiveness is I'm so afraid to say where I've been wrong you know or like there. it feels like so much threat or so much dismissiveness of it that I that I don't I don't know how like the thing Leah said about um, Nathan Price about doing wrong and living through it is a thing I still I think it's it's a maturity issue for me that I think comes out of some religious trauma like I don't know how to do that very well (laughs) so um, anyway I love the fact that for you in the Catholic Church that that's a practice that you you would go and say to somebody here are the things here are the people and then receive absolution and, and have a practice of acknowledging and then letting go of, you know?
0: Yeah. And I, um, I will, we'll wrap up soon. I know we've been, we've been talking for a while. Um, but I will say that I have occasionally gotten penance that is, you need to go apologize to this person. So that is, is something that I think is, is built into the sacrament that I, that I really appreciate. Yeah. That's super cool. Um, okay. So we have talked for a very long time. So I am going to say, let's, Uh, transition into our recommendation session section so we can wrap up uh Carla what recommendation do you have for us
1: so my recommendation is another book uh fiction book on missions that I also did a holy writ episode on so apparently I'm plugging plugging holy writ today um it's called silence by shusaku endo and um uh it is about japanese missions um in the early 20th century, I want to say I'm not going to remember all of that, but um, it's it's also a book on what happens when when missions goes with the idea that it is sort of the, the given thing and it meets a culture uh, that doesn't that doesn't align with that. Um, so
0: that's that's that. Thanks, Carla, Christina.
2: I ditto that recommendation. We use that in our first year seminar at Wheaton. Um, it's actually a 17th century. Um,
1: Thank you for the yeah, correction.
2: Yeah, no, and uh, it's, it's excellent. And um, my recommendations are kind of similar in the sense of, you know, Christianity in Africa would be uh, Chinua Achebe's uh, Things Fall Apart is just essential reading to kind of get from the inside out. This is kind of the outside in um, with Kingsolver. Naturally, she's not. Claiming to be able to tell the story from the African perspective, but we need the African perspective uh, to really get it. And then, following up with that, Adichie, you know, um, Purple Hibiscus is a good kind of response from uh, from the female perspective to the same kind of issues. And so, I, I strongly recommend both of those books.
0: Thank you, uh, Christina. My recommendation is a hymn. Uh, it's a uh, post-Vatican to him by a New Zealander uh, called Servant Song and I was going to I was going to recommend it before we sang it in Mass today Uh, but it it came up uh, today so I was affirmed in my desire to pick it and um, it's really about the mutuality of serving people for Jesus and community. Uh, There's A line at the beginning that says, uh, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you. Uh, And I pray I have the grace to let you be my servant too. And I I feel like everything we've been saying about uh, Nathan Price and what we wish he could have been able to do is kind of wrapped up in that. Uh, So we will link to all of these recommendations in our show notes. Uh, but for now, thank you so much, everybody, for being here with us. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at network, And you can find show notes from this and all our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison. For Christina Bieber Lake and Carla Godwin, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in one week when other panelists will discuss the women of Sherlock Holmes. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.